Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Mike and joining me in today's episode are Anne-Marie and Emmett from the My Wall Street Analyst team. We're talking all things ad today, with Meta up to its old tricks of copying its rival's homework. We also take a look at the Trade Desk and Roku as connected TV becomes a more prominent factor in the digital ad space. And Emmett and Amory pitched two promising stocks to close out the show. Amory, Emmett, thanks for joining us for another episode of Stock Club. How's everyone today? You're welcome, Mike. <laughs> you're welcome on the show. As well, you're welcome. Well, very, yeah, thank uh, you. Esteemed guest. Uh, did you see the aliens are making a big play this month? So there's obviously all that balloons going mm. on across America. And then a very um, suspicious, I was sphere ball just landed on a beach in Japan there today. Did you see that article? Yeah. Yeah. What's yeah. it made yeah. of? Uh, iron. Yeah, that's iron. very low tech. I can't iron be suspicious. And, uh, adamantium. <laughs> <laughs> And they discounted that it was an explosive device, but it's a big metal rusty sphere. And I I can't but help think that just came off a submarine or a boat or something like, you know, there's nothing suspicious about that. That's what they want you to think, though. Yeah, they want you to not be suspicious of the sphere. It actually, it reminded me a lot of, I I don't know if you guys would know this, but outside of Target stores in the United States, they have gigantic concrete balls that sit all along in front of the stores. I think it's to like prevent accidents, like someone accidentally driving up onto the sidewalk, but they've become quite synonymous with targets and they're painted bright red, like the target red. That's what it reminded me of. I thought it might be a new target advertisement campaign. They're coming to I, Japan. like, Or there's a target at the bottom of the sea. It probably yeah. is the last place in American, is it American waters? Yeah. So there's a target at the bottom of the deep blue sea frequented by SpongeBob SquarePants and his friends. There you go. There we go. Uh, <laughs> could be the spaghetti ball of nace as well. <laughs> um, okay, this is taking a dark turn. We'll uh, get into it straight away. So, And surprise, surprise, we're kicking off today's show with Facebook copying another social media company's idea. Um, so it came out on Sunday that Meta is going to roll out a paid verification service for Facebook and Instagram users. It's very similar to what we've already seen on Twitter with Twitter Blue. The service is going to cost between $12 and $15 a month and provide a blue verification badge as well as protecting against inc- account impersonation, which kind of seems like they should be doing that anyways, but we won't get into it. <laughs> Anne-Marie, uh, what are your thoughts well, I was I was just about to say the exact same thing. I was like, I don't know um, if this is enough for for fifteen dollars a month. Um, Zuckerberg said that yeah, you get the extra impersonation protection, and then you also will get a nice direct access to customer support, which I would agree. In my view, I think that these things might be essential to social media. So I don't know, is it appropriate to ask users to pay for them? That seems like you might segment your base a little bit there. Um, I suppose the impersonation protection is a lesson learned from Twitter's first attempt at verification where they just – basically, if you had $7, you were allowed to be anyone on the internet and yeah. have a verification badge. And um, as we all know, that went pretty poorly for some major brands in America that ended Eli- up promising free insulin. and things Eli like Lilly is down $40 billion still, yeah. I think. <laughs> Um, but something I do think that more social media companies should be looking into is an ex- an improved experience for power users, um, which Meta somewhat also hinted at with this announcement. They said that if you pay for verification, you will, you will get improved reach. Um, this is something Twitter started talking about like years ago, like under Jack Dorsey, you used to hear people say, well, you know, if Kim Kardashian has tens of millions of followers, why doesn't she have to pay for that promotion? Because she's essentially using it as a tool. And then she can then contact people directly and either endorse a brand or direct people to her own um, stores that she owns or, or something like that. And that kind of makes sense to me. Like if you're a major brand or a news outlet, social media is a really valuable communication tool. And I would assume that most of these individuals or companies would be willing to pay for something like improved metrics, improved targeting, improved content production, something like that. But we've actually never really seen 
any of that kind of development come to the fore, this would maybe be the first little inkling of something like that happening. And um, Meta has already spent the better part of a year trying to court influencers back to its platform. It pledged a billion dollars to a creator fund earlier this year. I think they should be looking for clear monetization opportunities there. Verification is like step one of that process. But to me, it, it just doesn't seem to go far enough for the amount of money that they're asking. I mean, for a major corporation, $15 a month isn't that much. But if you're, you know, an up and coming influencer and you only have a couple 10,000 followers, $15 a month might cut into the amount, small amount of revenue you're generating from your social media channels. So it's not insignificant. Um, if it was up to me, I would maybe say, let's try and get a bit more of a premium product going that would allow us to charge a bit more. Um, ideally, maybe something tied to your follower count would probably be ideal, something you know that is growing along with your users. Um, but overall, though, I think it's a really interesting shift to watch these social medias turn to subscription revenue. I think it's a reflection of, yes, ad revenue is drying up, but also there's like a legitimate change happening. And over the next year, I think we're going to find out how important social media is to people and whether or not they're willing to pay for it. And if they are, what do these users look like? Are they everyday people or are they, you know, the people with 10 million followers? Yeah. You know, it's, um, I wonder if there's a new generation popping up that uh, will be able to say to their children, I remember when all the social media was free. Like my equivalent yeah. is that when I was a kid, uh, the bins or the garbage was free. They just took it away and now everybody <laughs> pays <laughs> a few hundred euro a year to get their uh, their garbage lifted from outside their driveway. Um, I guess the next generation are going to go, when I was a kid, Facebook was free. Twitter was free. You didn't have to pay for a second account on Netflix and mm-hmm. you could share your logins and everyone in your family could log into Prime. It's going to be the good old days of when the mm-hmm. internet was half free. Now everything is paid for. I think this thing that Facebook is doing is compl- I'm, I'm completely missing it. Because, I mean, I wonder if someone impersonating me would do a better job at being me. It's actually possible. <laughs> why would I <laughs> Why would I pay Facebook to stop someone impersonating me? Yeah. yeah well, it's also, taking away garbage is an essential service. Is being mm. on Facebook an essential service? Oh, yes, Queen. You better believe it. Yeah, <laughs> three million people. But you, you kind of touched on something very interesting there where for a long time with social media companies, and, and the internet use in general, if you weren't paying for something, you were the product, your data and your uh, interests and everything being sold to advertisers and stuff. And I think you touched on it earlier. Has this attitude changed? Is is Facebook kind of seeing where I suppose the puck is going? Yeah, I do think we're maybe entering an era, temporary or not, where the data of a random person off the street isn't actually worth all that much. The combination of Apple tracking restrictions and a limited ad budget hitting is really hitting social media companies kind of where 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 it, where it hurts the most. You know, ad revenue is is the bread and butter of these companies that allows them to continue and to offer a free product. Um, without targeted advertising, more power is placed in the hands of creative or effective widespread advertising, which I think is why we're seeing a race for creators, either in-house um, at a brand or native to a platform that have, you know, this air of authenticity. We saw that really explode this year on TikTok where, you know, Every, like people like Ryanair or um, Duolingo just hired like a college grad and basically told him, yeah, do whatever you want. TikTok, it's fine. Or you saw inf- like influencers having a huge amount of pull and getting a tr- crazy amount of money to appear on certain platforms. I know, for example, uh, Snapchat is fighting right now to sign a bunch of influencers, huge influencers who would have come from TikTok, who have tens of millions of followers, and they pay upwards of $100,000 a month for you to go on Snapchat and just constantly be making Snapchat stories. Like, that's insane. Um, the influencer industry on social media is worth an estimated $16 billion in 2022, and it's probably going to grow more. And what's interesting is that while TikTok is the fastest growing platform, Instagram remains the most popular platform for brands. So there is still a legitimate pool there. So there is a sense that verification of this kind that we discussed, you know, with, with a bolstered reach, um, that's kind of the advertising model adapting, really. Um it's meta attempting to make money from this trend of you want to be viral and you want to be quirky and you want to seem real, even if you're a business, um, which I guess is this kind of backlash against the super kind of altered reality that we created on Instagram a couple of years ago where everybody was facetuned to the nines. Um, interestingly, Jason Goldman, who's a former VP of product at Twitter, he worked there from 2007 to 2009, said the notion that you're going to pay some subscription fees and then you'll 
your and, and then you'll feature more prominently in the algorithm. There's a name for that. It's advertising. It's just a different way of pricing it. Um, so yeah, I think what will end up happening is that brands, rather than doing the traditional route of producing an ad and then paying for it and then it'll be tagged, promoted, post, they're just going to pay to have the entire account verified, which should then give them the ability to appear on people's feeds more readily. The issue with this and the great experiment that we're about to enter into is, is this going to fundamentally ruin the entire product? Because the reason that this worked on TikTok, the reason this worked in kind of the early pandemic days is because it seemed authentic, or at least the illusion of authenticity was being maintained. You know, when you watch TikToks made by a 19-year-old girl to promote Ryanair, you kind of forget that Ryanair is a business because you're kind of like, oh, she's just in a silly, goofy mood and I'm watching this like entertainment. It's hardly an ad. If we all knew that companies were paying to get in front of us again, it might make users go, well, this has ruined my feed because 50 or 60 or 70% of the content I'm being forced to view has been promoted in some way. Money has changed hands here. And it again, it might be like what happened to Instagram last year where because of an algorithm change, people were suddenly going, why is Instagram recommending all this content to me from people I don't know when I initially joined Instagram to follow my friends and look at their photos? So it's a dangerous game. I think men is playing a really dangerous game, but I would agree with what you said in the intro. This is maybe them trying to adjust to the new reality within social media advertising. But I wonder if there's logic in a kind of a suspicion that eventually not doing this would be seen as irresponsible. So like as yeah. much as all the others have gone there, Facebook also needs to do a kind of a, a Me Too thing where if you want verification, you can do it. So I just don't know what what percentage of people are going to pay for that. Is, is it sub 1%, do you think? Um, we have estimates coming out of kind of a couple of analysts that said Meta Verified may bring in about 2 to $3 billion a year, which Meta brought in $117 billion last year. So it's it's not that much. So mm-hmm. they must be estimating. I mean, we can compare it to others. So for Twitter Plus, they currently have 290,000 subscribers worldwide. That's not that many in comparison to the tens of millions of people that use the platform. But I would assume that the people who are paying for it are, yeah, power users, people who use it consistently, or they're Elon Musk fanboys. I think that's kind of the way that they (laughs) – that's how they would be made up. Interestingly, though, when I was doing research for this story, there's kind of two outlier premium social media services here. There's Snapchat Plus, which is kind of funny because all you get with Snapchat Plus is exclusive badges to put on your photos and the ability to use the Snapchat web app. And they have 2 million subscribers, which is pretty solid, but they only charge $3.99 for it. So, like, you're not really making all that much off of it. But the one that I really liked was Tumblr, which is the old blogging site that was very popular in about 2013, 2014. They created a parody of Twitter's verification badge because they thought it was so ridiculous, and they called it the double blue checkmark. And for a small fee, you could get a double blue checkmark on your platform, which did absolutely nothing in terms of verification. It was just a joke. And in a single quarter, they generated $263,000 from it. What you're thinking, you know, for a tech company, that's not spectacular, but that's a 125% jump from spending on the platform the quarter before. Yeah. Get me a phone. I'm calling the head of product development (laughs) for My Wall Street. We need blue ticks on the My Wall Street, Mm. whatever. You name it. We need blue ticks. Get me a blue tick. So do you know what? Maybe you need to lean into the culture of the internet and just make it a meme and people just pay for that. Done. Wow. That's what I was thinking. And the Twitter blue became a bit of a meme as well. But that also came about because Elon Musk basically came in and nuked like half of Twitter's ad revenue. And it yeah. was like, all right, well, we need new revenue streams. Whereas you mentioned there with Facebook, with Meta, it's going to be a bit of a rounding error in terms of, you know, a very small, a very small addition to total revenue. So yeah, I think you're getting onto this anyways, but is this the start of a new direction or a new kind of, I suppose, the, the building blocks of something much larger down the line for Meta as a company? Yeah, you're kind of like, is it a product or is it a feature? It's it's that kind of way that they talk on social media. And to be completely honest, I don't know where this is going to go until we can see initial uptake figures because I think the platform this is going to be most important for is going to be Instagram. Um, and I do think it's the, the power is going to be in the influencer market and in the brand market. And we have to see if they're willing to cough up for this service. I mean, yeah, it's going to be less than 1% of an annual revenue boost. I'm kind of you know, in a short-term mindset, I would say this is maybe an attempt to bolster revenue numbers just enough so the company snaps out of its gradual revenue decline that it's been going through for the last 
two quarters or so. And maybe it's just Zuckerberg trying to buy some time so he can try and get some metaverse stuff off the ground. You know, I know they want to put out the higher price ocular sets or um, maybe he's hoping that macro conditions will normalize so a bit more ad revenue will flow through like normal. Um, it's 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 difficult to say because any competitors put out one of these services, there hasn't been great uptake. And I know like even with Twitter, all right, they have whatever, 250,000 plus users. That's 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 respectable if they were, you know, maybe if you could up the price based upon followers. Yeah, you could generate something from that. But the back end for Twitter has been an absolute nightmare because the the process of going through and verifying these users is something that the company isn't set up for and it's now like extremely understaffed. And so it's made a, it's become a huge problem and it might be more trouble than it's actually worth now for Twitter. Um, yeah, it's also worth mentioning that in order to become verified on Facebook, you need to submit a government-issued ID. And with all of the kind of data storage issues that Facebook has had in the past, how many people are going to want to like turn over a copy of their passport to Facebook? Mm. I don't know. Yeah, but I think you're on the money there, Anne-Marie, about this is really just a, a stopgap revenue line item for the balance sheet while they figure out other projects, aka the metaverse. Um, but um, when you like for me, it's the economic equivalent of, uh, you, prob- you guys probably don't remember this, but Facebook had an early feature called the poke. And oh, it was a yeah. finger, yeah, right? And it's this is the economic equivalent of the poke. It's like, why? Why did somebody poke me? And uh, yeah. oh, and then I, you remove it, and then you poke them back, and then they might because they're they're great fun poke you again, and then you remove it. And but this is the for me, this is the, <laughs> this is the economic equivalent. It's like you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to buy a blue tick. But uh, to your point about uploading your passport or whatever government ID, it makes perfect sense for someone like Airbnb, where basically you're going into somebody's home and there's a very high degree of trust needed on both sides for facebook really the use case for me just doesn't jump out yeah i think uh the use of the poke might have been wasted on yamish it was <laughs> yeah. it completely was i was not a high consumer of it in fact one by one i deleted most of my facebook all my photographs i deleted one at a time because i um i firstly couldn't believe the amount of my life i'd uploaded over a period of 10 years and in deleting photos uh i subsequently learned i offended some people which of course was never ever the intention um i've mended those relationships but people thought i was trying to undo them erase them from my life but now i've just a couple of inane pictures and i i am never using the poke feature again it's gone <laughs> i've purged it from my existence i don't know if it's even still there i'm not sure um but talking about zuckerberg there and maybe the future of facebook he's dubbed 2023 the year of efficiency um <clears throat> i think there might be more job cuts on the way as well they were talking about performance reviews and such uh but the company's had a huge or the stock sorry has had a huge uh turnaround since i think november it's up yeah. almost 100% in that time. How do you feel about the company now compared to, say, this time last year? I think investors have certainly noticed an opportunity, mm-hmm. whether it's a short-term or a long-term one. I'm not sure. Yeah, I would say the stock recovering is a short-term thing. I do think we're having a broader market recovery, so it's probably getting swept up in that. Plus, it was really caught up in the big tech sell-off, the advertisement sell-off that we saw um, last winter, um, it probably was oversold the last two quarters. So yeah, there probably is a short-term opportunity there. But my feeling towards the company in the long term really has remains unchanged and has been unchanged for maybe the last year to year and a half. I have been quite critical of Facebook's negligence, really, when it comes to their central products and really their kind of disinterest in them. Um And I would continue to see the root problem for this to be that Instagram, Facebook, and WhatsApp are not popular with young people. And like young people determine what's cool and what will be used. And young people tend to be where advertisement dollars want to be. And so I think as we continue to just progress forward in the next five to 10 years, I just don't see the products being relevant anymore. And that places, that means like if you're going to own this stock, you have got to be super comfortable with the metaverse. And that has to got to be like where your belief is founded. Um, the Atlantic has this really great article called Instagram is over. They published at the end of uh, 2022. 
There's a great quote in it that says, Gen Z's relationship with Instagram is much like millennials' relationship with Facebook, begrudgingly necessary. Casey Lewis, a youth culture consultant who writes for the youth culture newsletter after school, told me over email, they don't want to be on it. They feel it's weird, but they feel it's weird if they're not. In fact, a recent Piper Sandler survey found that of 14,500 teens surveyed across the United States, only 20% named Instagram their favorite social media platform. TikTok came first, followed by Snapchat. So again, we're seeing this thing of if you want to be a social media, you got to be entertaining or you got to be providing me a way to communicate with a group of people I actually know, you know, a group of my friends. Um, And Instagram and Facebook continue to have ne- neither of those. So I just, I don't see where the future is for them. Yeah. It's, it's call it the year of efficiency while you're spending 40 billion quid on mm. the metaverse is also a, a bit of double thing from 1984, I believe. But um, we'll stick with ads for the next section. And we're going to look at two standout earnings reports from this industry. First, a longtime favorite of us here at my Wall Street is the Trade Desk, which blew investors out of the water with the blockbuster quarter there last week. Emmett, you got a chance to look at this one for us. Yep, I did, Mike. And as ever, I'm not going to assume our listeners know what the business does. So I'm just going to give that 60 seconds. Uh, the Trade Desk is a technology company, I suppose, that provides demand side platform or a DSP for advertisers to manage their digital advertising campaigns across, well, across everything, uh, every type of channel and device. So they basically allow advertisers to access uh, this range of digital ad inventory, which includes, you know, video, audio, uh, social media advertising, and it is effectively, the trade desk is effectively competing against Google, Facebook ads, and all the other big brands. Their platform uses a real-time bidding technology to help advertisers target specific audiences and then to optimize their ad placements. And it also provides advanced analytics and reporting tools, which is really important for these advertisers because they can measure the performance of their campaigns and ultimately make data driven decisions. So the, the net upshot is that the trade desk enables really highly personalized consumer experiences. And then in turn, it improves the return on investment for companies and advertisers. So basically, the trade desk is what would we call it a cutting edge tech advertising platform. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's known for its commitment to transparency. It's always been a, a very vocal advocate for industry standards and the best practice in digital advertising, which in the early days was quite a murky space and, and money just was getting flushed and you just had to really hope that it would convert. Now, so the trade desk, it's profitable. It's pretty big. And the stock price has grown from a solid $5 and change about five years ago to about 60 bucks today. So not bad. But to your question, Mike, how did it do recently? So where we are today in the world of advertising in Q4, which is the quarter they just reported on, other platforms, including Google and Meta and all the rest, saw spending decline by about, I think it was 4%. Does that ring a bell with you guys? Yeah. I think there was a 4% discla- uh, decline for both Google and Meta on their advertising uh, line item. The trade desk beat the ad market again, and it grew 24% over year over year. Um, it earned... $491 million in the quarter. It earned, it bottom lined nearly a quarter, sorry, a half a billion dollars, um, which is up from about $400 million in the same uh, period a year earlier. So imagine a truck delivering a half billion profit from just 12 weeks of work. I mean, that's an impressive business. Uh, revenue to, for the full year jumped from $1.2 billion to about $1.6 billion. And the shares jumped 30% on the day that the announcement was made. So it was a very impressive day. It was a very impressive quarter. And it just shows that a business that's focused on doing one thing well, when they do that one thing well, they can outperform the others. Mm. Yeah, a lot has been said about the worsening macro conditions and their effect on ad budgets. And you touched on it there with Facebook and Google suffering. So why is the trade risk booking that trend? Well, there's two things, Mike. The first is that, number one, the effectiveness of its tech solutions, which has resulted in revenue retention at 95% for the ninth consecutive year. So really, this their stuff works. And the second reason, so number one is effective tech solutions. Number two is a massive runway 
for the growth in CTV or connected TV advertising and shopper marketing. And the CEO, Jeff Green, said that the company intends to invest in hiring this year with a focus on shopper marketing and CTV. These are the two fastest growing segments in the digital ad industry. And the Trade Desk has partnerships with everyone. It has every ad-supported streaming service you can think of, uh, Paramount Plus and Disney, uh, Hulu, HBO Max, etc., etc. So the Trade Desk is well in with everyone, uh, wherever you place your eyeballs, the Trade Desk is powering their adverts. Anywho, Green shared updates on 2Tech's Open Path and UID 2.0, both of which are products that really ultimately demonstrate how far the Trade Desk has come since it went public only a few years ago in 2016 as a pure agency-based demand-side platform. So loads of streaming services are integrating the Trade Desk's identity solution, UID 2.0, which is resulting in 12 times the targeting efficiency. So more so than ever, people are seeing the right ads for them at the right time. And then on top of that, before I'm going to shut up now, on top of that, they've partnerships uh, with 80% of the largest retailers in America, meaning these uh, big shops like Target, who, uh, who, who put bombs or empty bombs on Japanese shores, like, and the like, they use their data to uh, measure the success of their campaigns. And one of the time proven hardest things in uh, marketing is advertising spend. And now it's very measurable. And that's the edge that the Trade Desk has over Google and Meta and others. Yeah. So I suppose if advertising budgets are constricting, they might focus on the most efficient places to go. And that's proven oh, to be yeah. the Trade Desk time again. Uh, you yeah. mentioned Jeff Green there, the founding CEO. And we've always talked about the importance of founding CEOs uh, at mm. companies we invest in. What's so special about uh, Mr. Green? Let me give you a non-specific example that a friend of mine told me. Uh, a friend of his owns a pub in County Galway, which, as you only know too well, Mike, as it's your home county, is on the opposite side of the country to Dublin, where I am, um, and which for our American listeners is just two and a half hour drive from one coast <laughs> to the other. Anyway, this friend of a friend has a rock star bar manager. He, the, the, my friend of a friend owns a, a pub and he has a rock star bar manager, a really dedicated, engaged, hardworking individual who's just killing it, like a brilliant manager. But despite that, when the owner is running the pub, the takings on an average night are around 20% higher. Because when you own something, you become hypersensitized to the gears of your machine. You know where to tighten up, whether, I don't know, in the world of pubs, it's clearing tables faster or upselling or what whatever. I've no idea. I've never run a pub, uh, but you just feel it in your bones. Like a more practical example is when you own a house, as opposed to renting one, you see a crack in the paintwork faster. You hear the water pump going up and down sooner. You notice everything that can deteriorate faster and you react sooner because you really, really care. Well, Jeff Green, the CEO of the Trade Desk founder is all of that, but with, I suppose, a $30 billion house. Um, so apart from being a 45-year-old multi-billionaire who, frankly, can't be motivated by money anymore. I mean, the guy, I think his net worth is like three or $4 billion. You have to assume. Anyway, he's not, he's not motivated by money. He's done it before. He co-founded Oh, uh, ad, they were called ADCN, which was a demand side advertising platform, which Microsoft acquired in 2007. Now he's in flow. He's only 45 years old. He's a multi-billionaire. He's done it before. This machine that he's built is now streamlined. He knows, he can see it. And he can see the way the industry is moving. And he has built a company to respond appropriately. He's a rare caliber of quality leader, to be honest. And, and I think he's, uh, I suppose, in the world of digital advertising, you know, he's the name. He's the name he's, that, he's the that, that stands out. He's yeah. the guy. And it, it's not just opinion about founding CEOs performing better on the market. It's actually like based on hard evidence, isn't it? Oh, it is. Yeah. I mean, very basically every variable that can exist in a publicly listed business um, has been measured against the impact it has on the share price, everything. So whatever number you look at, there is a range 
within which it is optimal. So like insider ownership, which is to mentor shares owned by uh, members of the team and, and, and board members and senior execs and founders uh, is optimal between five and 40%. That's been measured. So basically every percentage ownership of insiders uh, of insider ownership has been graphed over the long term on share price performance. And if it's between five and 40%, it's optimal. Well, similarly, businesses that are run by founding CEOs behave and think differently. They look to the very long term. They're out to achieve something that's far more than uh, getting paid this month. I can think of a whole bunch of names flow to mind of businesses that have no um, ultimate vision because the founder is long gone. I mean, I'm speaking with passion now because I am a, a founding CEO, our former CEO, my co-founder is the CEO. But um, uh, I know that speaking from an opinion of just one person. I care about my Wall Street far, far, far more than anyone we could ever recruit. You know, I'll die on the hill for this business because it is an extension of me. And there's not a CEO you can hire in, whether it's to the trade desk or Google or Facebook, Yahoo, whatever, like ultimately it has to happen because humans are mortal, but the CEO founder, like I know that nobody cares for my Wall Street more than John Tyrrell, but the, the exception myself were in joint first place, just as the same goes with Tradesk. And these people will think bigger, they'll lean harder, they'll work later. They'll never stop thinking about it. They stare at the ceiling at night thinking about the business, not because they want to get paid more. I'm a bit fired up after that. Um, yeah. <laughs> Let's start a business. Come on, guys, you're in. <laughs> I already have some questions about Roku, but we can just go off now and start something yeah, else. Sure. Yeah. Um, so but, on that, good utility companies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so yeah, next up in the advertising space, we have Roku, which also impressed in its recent earnings call. Uh, Amory, what did investors like about this one? Yeah, it was a pretty strong beat, uh, to be honest, particularly on the revenue side. So the company reported total revenue of $860 million, um, which beat estimates of $801 million pretty handily. That was Everyone was excited. I was thrilled because I have been talking to Roku probably for the last year. Mm -hmm. And every time they, they post a quarterly earnings, they disappoint me. But here we go. Well, I contributed, I contributed to that. I bought a Roku stick in the last quarter. So thank you. Wow. You're welcome. Thank okay. you. Yes. <laughs> um, but another upbeat, upbeat sign was, of course, they uh, gave projections for next quarter and they said, oh, yeah, we'll bring in about 700 million in revenue and that beat Wall Street's expectations by about 10 million. So we are on the right track here. They also just just about beat um, their earnings per share, which is negative dollar and 70 cents, which uh, was uh, just just over, I suppose, expectations of a, a dollar and seven negative a dollar and 73 cents. So um, that looked pretty good. Also, it ended 2022 with 70 million active accounts up more more than 10 million since 2021. We like to see that. And total streaming hours on their service jumped 23% in the quarter, reaching 23.9 billion hours. Um, after that nice report, the stock popped about 20%. So uh, it, was a, it was good. It was a nice one. Mm. So we talked, Emma mentioned it there, and we kind of talked about the shifts in the ad industry and a lot of money going towards connected TV. Is Roku yeah. going to be one of the main beneficiaries of the shift? Yeah, I would say they'll be one of the main beneficiaries, along with arguably like the trade desk sells connected TV ad space as well. So, you know, that's also a nice, a nice, uh, a nice place to put your money. But I suppose if you're looking for a pure play, Roku would kind of be the place. So overall spend for the ad market is projected to grow 5.9% year over year in 2023. Um, that's slower than we saw in 2022, which when it came in at about 9%. But interestingly, advertisement investment in connected TV is expected to tick up about 14.4%. So it's growing almost, you know, three times the the rest of the ad market. So um yeah, if you're looking if you're looking for what ad space is going to pop, it's going to be um here. And that that's I really think can be contributed to the fact that for the first time ever in history in July 2022, we saw streaming's share of total TV time surpass that of traditional cable. Um and that was pretty impressive and immediately ads money has shifted because we expect to see cable TV ad spend drop by 6.3% this year. So um, really everyone is just kind of chasing the eyeballs. Um, in the US, Roku controls the majority of the connected TV market. More than a third of the country's smart TVs now use Roku's operating system and a Roku device can be found in 50% of broadband connected homes in the United States. So really if you're trying to reach 
the majority of Americans, you can do so via Roku's ad platform. Um, they've spent the last several decades building out a pretty great targeting system. They bought tech from Nielsen's, which is very famously the ratings agency, which helps uh, channels understand, okay, who's watching what, when are they watching it? Um, and that basically allows them to effectively target viewers, understand what they're watching, when they're watching, what channels are they using, what streamers do they subscribe to. Um, I also like don't think we should underestimate the Roku home screen and the value of helping connect people even to streaming content itself. Um, on their recent earnings call, Gideon Katz, who's the head of Roku's customer division, stated that streaming viewers today are taking 52% longer to decide what they want to watch than they did a couple of years ago due to like just the increase in options and also just the difficulty in finding what content is on what channel. You know, there's so much stuff coming out these days. It's really like someone might tell you about a TV show and it, you will then find out down the lines on Paramount Plus, and it'll take you 15 minutes to discover that mm. information. Yeah. So Roku is really taking that opportunity to place advertisement there. And what a great place then for someone like HBO or Netflix to say, oh, we're putting out this new show. Do you know what? We'll go ahead and we will pay for advertisement on Roku for the next six weeks and try and get this in front of people. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 really kind of the easy place for advertisers to connect with people on connected TV. And also, I went and had a look at the Roku advertisement platform and it really is set up kind of with the way the Facebook advertisement platform was set up years ago where it was like a business of any size could go on and say, OK, I want to do a connected TV advertisement, but I just want it to be in my local community. You know, if you're a furniture store in Dublin and you just want to direct advertisements towards your local area, you can do that on the Roku platform. So it's a very uh, interesting place to be, certainly. That's cool. I got time to ask what box sets are you guys watching at the minute or what shows are you watching? Oh, Last of Us. Have you started? Yeah, yeah. I'm watching The Last of Us as well. Excellent. Mm. Mm, I heard. I'm watching 1923 on Paramount Plus and it's outstanding. Yeah. Um, I just went on the, I was actually doing research on Paramount Plus <laughs> earlier and they like, they're a bit desperate at the minute in terms of their streaming service. And so the, on their quarterly calls, they just talk about their content now. They're like, yep, this is coming out in 1923. was a, like a big one that they were saying, yeah, this should promote some some subscribers. Um, yeah. So talking about, I suppose, content and the amount that's on streaming now, we just mentioned a couple of weeks ago about Warner Brothers Discovery starting to license, yeah. out, license out its shows and films. And Roku was going to be one of the first recipients. So how will this power Roku's own streaming efforts? And like, do you see it as an efficient use of capital? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Roku's kind of a funky little streamer. They really just kind of take the scraps. Um, it's not something that they're overly focused on. It's estimated that this year they're going to spend about a billion dollars on content. That's way less than all the big name streamers. You know, Netflix keeps throwing around 17 billion. Like, that's a lot of money. Um and they they really just kind of contact legacy players. Like for example, here they're they're taking they're picking up content that HBO or um, Discovery doesn't want because it's old or whatever. And Roku, yeah, we'll pick that up for nothing. And so they've got this massive backlog. They've got like hundreds and hundreds of films. They've got a thousand TV shows, something like that, all kind of old content. And then they produce a few select TV and film a year. And they go for weird stuff. So they produce the Weird Al film this year. And when they dropped the trailer in July, they said that they saw so much online excitement and it kind of legitimized Roku in the eyes of advertisers. They said they could draw a direct line from them dropping that trailer to like signing on the dotted line for a billion dollars in commitments from seven major advertising agency companies throughout the United States. Like that was enough of a justification for those agencies to be like, okay, yeah, fair. Like this is where eyeballs are going to go. Um, and when it comes to these kind of funky movies that they spend a little bit of money on, they're they're not – I don't know. It's not an, an overly huge commitment. They made the Weird Al movie for $11 million. In the kind of Hollywood phrasing, I know that's ridiculous to say $11 million isn't a lot of money, but, you know, The Last of Us spends $10 million an episode. So to produce an entire movie for that's not too bad. And then to have it go viral and then, you know, probably did get a few more people onto the Roku channel, which is entirely free. It's just ad supported. Um, yeah. And they, they're they kind of smart with the – it's it's kind of like the trash TV channel – but for the streaming age. So you just go on there when you're bored. You don't have to pay for it. You probably watch it idly. A lot of the content they have is old reality TV stuff or cooking shows or whatever. Um, but it's estimated that it reaches 100 million people a year in the U.S. And this year they saw streaming hours on it go up by 85%. So it obviously is something that people do just kind of turn on. Um, and according to management, the scale and engagement that they see on the channel oftentimes makes it a partner of choice for publishers and content owners that are trying to absolutely maximize the value of their content. So you know what? Probably for a local furniture store that might be where they go they say hey 
I can't afford to place ads on Disney or on Netflix, but I can afford to put them on the Roku channel. And I know that people do end up watching that stuff. So yeah, they may as well see this advertisement. So for now, I'm actually not opposed to the way that Roku is handling content. It seems that they're going about it in a responsible way. I'm sure down the line, they'll probably do the math. And if it's no longer effective, like if they can't break even doing this service, they'll probably just back up. But considering that the vast majority of the investment is not they're just buying up rights they're they're you know they're not creating the vast majority of the content themselves i think it's okay for now nice one. the power of weird al yankovic there you go <laughs> uh, and i read i read an interview with him actually and he was like yeah it ended up on roku because nobody else wanted it he was like i wrote the script and pitched it and just n- there was no interest so he's like <laughs> i let roku have it it's fair enough yeah uh- Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Um, okay, so this is your weekly reminder. If you haven't already to sign up for our newsletter, Charging and Fearless, it is a free email in which you receive a brand new stock pitch every week. We promise it'll be the most valuable 30 seconds you spend in your inbox all week. In this week's email, we pitch one of, in my opinion anyways, the highest quality businesses in the payment space that is trading at a historic discount. If you look at if you like what you hear on the pod, you'll love what we write. So sign up today at the link in the description. Uh, mailbag. Uh, oh, no. <clears throat> Sorry, one sec, Mike. Uh, how did our first pitch perform in charging a fearless post publication Kahoot? <clears throat> yeah, I checked it today, and I think it's up eight. It's up about eight and a half percent. And it was up twelve percent yesterday. It was up twelve percent. Yeah, it fell four percent today. It's a it's a uh, small company, so it's a bit it's a bit erratic. But I can talk about that in the in the stock pitch later on. Get people excited. Okay, yes. okay sounds good. Yep. Uh, okay, mailbag. Worrying news coming out for Microsoft and Microsoft Mastercard and Visa uh, as they look set to face what is believed to be one of the biggest competition compensation claims in UK history. Emmett, can you expand on these claims against the credit card companies? Oh, yeah. Apparently, and as you just said, Harkus Parker, which is a London-based commercial litigation law firm, is close to filing what it believes will be among the biggest competition compensation claims in the history of the UK. And it's a troublesome backdrop, really, for morning coffees in the HQ of our favourite flexible friends. Uh, come here to me. Do either of you guys remember the TV advert for that, the flexible friend? Does that ring a bell? No. It was before your time. It was actually, it was a 1980s British television advertisement for a credit card, which <laughs> was called the... Hold on. <laughs> when when Hold do you on. think we were born? Hold the 80s? <laughs> <laughs> You're wise beyond your years, so you might have been, you'd look young. Anyway, so uh, so this access card was one of the original credit cards. It was taken over by, I think, MasterCard in 96. So I suppose they own the expression flexible friend. Look, good times, great asset. So what's happening at Visa and MasterCard? Well, um, it reported that the filing at the Competition Appeal Tribunal um, sorry, it is reported that the MasterCard and Visa overcharge businesses for so-called multilateral interchange fees, MIFs, um, and they're paid by businesses to banks to accept payment by credit or debit card. Now, MIFs are uh, estimated to comprise as much of 90% of the cost of a typical company's monthly bank charge. And the claim will argue that these fees are set by MasterCard and Visa because they, they effectively have a duopoly. So it's not market forces. It's just that you're either with one card, on this side of the Atlantic anyway, you're either with one card or the other. I just Is there a third? I don't even know. Um, but anyway, the, so the market forces are absent. Um, 
and they're imposed on banks as a condition of their participation in the two companies' credit card schemes. So Harkus Parker, the law firm, uh, declined to comment on the uh, uh, prospective size of the action when Sky News called them. So I said to myself, I'm not going to call them. I mean, if Sky News couldn't do it, (laughs) I'm not going to do it. So anyway, anyway, what they said was that... resources, fair play. Yeah, exactly. I said, well, if they're not going to break the door in, neither am I. Uh, So, uh, but a source source said they expected that it would be seven and a half billion quid expected and it could ultimately be worth to close to double that sum. So top line, don't read. Ouch. Wow. So yeah. it was the company that we should all found a new type of debit card and payment system. Well, you know, some co- stop charging so much, basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a slap on the wrist, but we we're now in the age of fines. So the, uh, <laughs> European, uh, is it the, oh, what's it called again? How can I forget the data regulator? Um, yeah, is, it's like is the European the, regulatory the body. European, yeah, the yeah. data regulator sits here in Dublin. They're throwing fines on every single one of the digital giants. And I think it's only right that the banking regulators do the same for this duopoly because they do occupy a space that's basically, I won't say it's untoppable, but it's pretty difficult. Mm. Mm. I suppose what would be worrying for MasterCard or Visa is the fine is water off a duck's back for them, but... Mm is that going to limit what they can actually charge for these fees in the future? I think that would be the kind of worrying aspect in this case. My, my, my opinion is that they're just probably, they're annoyed they get caught, you know, it's like, (laughs) you know, that's a pity we were caught. That was, it was good while it lasted. Anyway, see you at coffee in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, We'll finish out today with an elevator pitch. Nothing fancy. I just want you to pitch me a company that's been on your watch list. I think, um, we we uh, already know what you're going to pitch, so yeah. you can lead us out. That's spo- it was spoiled. There's not even a spo- like a spoiler warning. Um, By the way, yeah, Anne-Marie, the- I'm a nine, I'm mind reader because last week I spoke about 23andMe just before you pitched it. And yeah, I suspect, you did. And I had no idea. And I had no idea that, well, until a few minutes ago that you were going to pitch good. So, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce you to <laughs> Anne-Marie Kingsland. And she is about to pitch Kahoot. Anne-Marie, over yeah. to you. Yeah. Um, Kahoot is a super interesting company. I knew about them years ago because we used to use them in school. Like in in high school, it seems that they have only just become more and more popular. Seven million teachers all around the world use Kahoot all the time. It started out initially as a kind of just quiz software. You know, if you were trying to review for an exam or something like that, your teacher might make up a a Kahoot quiz and you'd all get on your phone and you get extra points if you answer super fast. And that was kind of it. But Kahoot has really kind of reinvented itself since then. So it launched its first commercial edition back in 2000. 2018 and garnered about 40,000 paid subs. Um, and then it launched, you know, some iOS and some Android apps. And it's also gone on a nice little steady acquisition spree. It's a very much an ed tech company. It's focused on, okay, how do we like quizzing children can only work in some educational environments. So how do we build out, you know, at home learning? How do we build out stuff for math? How do we build out stuff for languages? And they've acquired a nice little host and suite of companies over the last few years. Um, in 2019, they achieved 170,000 paid subscriptions. And uh, in 2020, that ballooned to over half a million when it launched out its first like comprehensive platform, which would give you access to multiple services at the same time. Um they are forecasting gap profitability in 2023. They've been chasing profitability now for for a while. They talk about it maybe the last two or three years. So, you know, this is the kind of key thing that I would be keeping an eye on, like many up-and-coming tech companies that have fast-growing revenue. You know, the, the turn to profitability, I think, is pretty key. Um, but they had astounding revenue growth during the pandemic. So um, for 2020, revenue is up 247%. For 2021, it was up 134%. 2022, we're just about starting to slow down with 50 year-over-year revenue growth. Um, But this is like small amounts of money. So 2022, they brought in $168 million, um, which, you know, is small, but they're growing quickly. And I think they have outstanding brand recognition, I think, you can get get schools signed on to this quite easily and they'll probably never get rid of it because it's highly effective. Kids have great recognition with it and they have really powerful partnerships. Um, it's like three or four percent of the company is owned by Disney. Disney provides them free content and access to, you know, things like Marvel and Star Wars to, you know, help teachers make things look more interesting. I know they have a big partnership with National Geographic, with Merriam-Webster, with NASA. Um, yeah. And so I think it's a kind of ed tech company that you could feel good holding on to. It's very small, though. So, you know, you want to be adding it to a 
nicely diversified portfolio. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an easy one to love. And for those sitting in front of Zoom, as we do for very many hours a day, uh, the new apps they've installed on the right hand side of the the client on the screen there, the top yeah. top right hand side is Kahoot. Yeah. And I know they're also embedded in um, Microsoft Teams. So you can do it on Skype as well. So um, I, I think that that would be maybe the main competitive risk is you'd be like, oh, like Zoom or Microsoft could probably invent something pretty similar, particularly for the main Kahoot quiz function. But it seems they're not interested. It seems like memes seems they're happy enough to just embed the technology. So uh, yeah, it should be all right for, for a few years. Not so bad. Emmett, what do you got for us? Well, I'm actually going to also use the charging fearless uh, recommendation engine that we've built as I saw one on the conveyor belt. Um, and it so happened to align with a text message I got from a friend of mine in uh, Singapore. Hi, Niall. Thank you for that. And he pointed out to me uh, a business we're all aware of, which is BYD, the Chinese electric car company, which stands for Build Your Dreams, by the way. But the reason I'm interested in it and what my friend Niall pointed out was that just last week, Charlie Munger said, Charlie Munger of Berkshire Hathaway uh, on Wednesday of last week said that Tesla pales in comparison to BYD in China. He called it, he called the Chinese electric vehicle maker his favorite stock ever. He went on to say, and I quote, Tesla last year reduced its prices in China twice. BYD increased its prices. We are direct competitors. BYD is so much ahead of Tesla in China, it's almost ridiculous. And I just thought that was a very powerful quote from someone who's a big stakeholder, who knows the management team, who knows the market, can see what's happening very up close and personal. I mean, we all know that the inside the walls of China is very difficult to understand when you're sitting outside. But I just thought uh, that that particular quote and insight from Charlie was very interesting and kind of between it and it being already identified by Charging Fearless as something we're probably going to click go on at some point in the future. I just thought, yeah, that's the one to pitch. And I've certainly promoted it on my watch list of stocks to possibly invest in. I like that. Yeah. Nice. Charlie Munger, 99 years of age, talking about investing <laughs> yeah. for the future. So like, you know, when you have a 12 year old going, you know, this is the greatest company I've ever seen. <laughs> You're kind of like, okay. But when you have Charlie Munger, it's like, are you serious? He's are you kidding you, me? Yeah. He's, he's, comparing it to, he's comparing it to rail, railroad companies yeah. back in the day. Yeah, That's right. It's your favorite stock <laughs> ever. Do you a think if you were 99, wise. you would start pitching ridiculous things because you wouldn't be around to see to see it all fall apart? I'd love to get him like, on the phone and say, what do you think of Kahoot? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're okay. pitching like Tootsie Roll. They're going to grow 100% in the next five years, I guarantee Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's it for today's show, folks. Thanks very much for joining us, and thanks very much for listening in. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like answered or elevator pitches you'd like to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, that's at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok, at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to give us a review and tell your friends about us. And if you're really enjoying the show, do sign up to Charging and Fearless and you can get more of the My Wall Street magic in your inbox. Thanks for joining us today and we'll talk to you next week. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe Ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.